Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. Paul wants to get going right away. No fault at all. Here we go. We had an interesting week this week in uh, racist anti-racism, China, our totalitarian friends from the East, uh, showed up in a couple different uh, commentaries. Um, actually, uh, when you think of it, three different commentaries. Uh, wow, that's that's uh, they're taking over. They're taking over. Anyway, um, and we dealt with the filibuster in a way that I haven't heard anybody talk about. And it gets at something, and we'll get to it in a second, but it, it gets at something that we talk about it on this podcast. I don't know if I've actually done a script on. I mean, I've touched on it in, in a, probably a zillion different scripts, but we don't decide much of anything. We're not. We're we're constantly viewed by politicians and the media and the kind of psychophanic, uh, you know. Uh, establishments around politicians in the media, the public is, we're spectators. And, you know, they have to tell us certain things and then wait for us to vote and they kind of roll their eyes because we're stupid and, oh, hopefully we haven't told them the wrong thing, they'll vote the right way. But um, there's there's a, a uh, there's a lot of uh, desire not to have us involved in the actual debate, even if we they have to put up with us making the decision. They don't want our cockamamie ideas coming in on a regular basis, and uh, and I think you'll see that you know throughout the the last five days, uh, Good Friday, uh, we we tape this, and over the weekend. Uh, we we lay it out on Saturday by the audio and Sunday on uh, uh, or the website. This is commonsense.org and also on YouTube and and so on. But uh, these last five days, well, Monday we dealt with something that um, you know it, it'd be one of those things that oh the crazy thing that's happening out in Oakland, except that since then I found that it's also happening in Marin County. Uh, California, a very wealthy county just north of San Francisco. And it's likely to happen all over the place. And it's part of a huge movement to make remake the United States this way. And that is whitey need not apply. And in, I mean, the story's simple. In Oakland, they're doing one of these, you know, guaranteed income. Let's see if it helps people to give them money. I can tell you, you don't have to do the experiment. Give people money, it helps them. It just, it's just simple mathematics. It helps them. It might help them, you know, do something that they probably shouldn't do. It might help them do something wonderful. But give people money, it helps them. What kind of idiots are we that we have to experiment with whether that helps people? Now, if you were talking about universal basic income, that's really a different issue. Uh, because that's giving everybody money every month and it's designed kind of, uh, or at least most of the people who've put it forward have talked about taking away other social programs so that in essence, it's one social program. If you go work, you still get it. 
So you don't have to worry about if you wanted to take a risk and change jobs or if you wanted to get a job, you don't have to worry about your benefits being cut and that you actually go to work and bring home less money than you would have if you just sat at home. So, you know, there's some there's some rationale. I, I tend to not like it just because the idea of the government putting everybody on the dole just ah, there's just nothing in that idea for me. I just. You know, I don't even want to really know we're all out here if we could afford it for the most part. So, you know, having them send us checks, it just, you know, this last go round, they sent, I just had some more money sent into my account as other Americans have from Uncle Sam. It's, uh, I don't know, I don't really feel very good about it. Although I I saw a story that uh, this is the highest uh, approval rating for Congress in a long time. So apparently if you shove a couple thousand dollars into people's accounts, uh, you know, they, they like you more. Anyway, in Oakland, this program gives residents $500 a month. And it's a pilot program. They're trying to push this idea. But in Oakland, it is available only to people of color other than the color white. Um, in Oakland, we now have like a racist, you know, and if you, you were to call it apartheid type system, you know, oh, that's so overstating it. But technically that's what it is. You're developing a system in which, no, no, you're not in that line, you're white. And when you do that, the problem with it isn't the color of skin that you pick, it's that you're picking colors of skin. That's the whole deal. So so this idea that somehow we're going to get rid of racism by, in essence, hurting white people and denying white people certain benefits who are poor, and, and supposedly need these benefits. Now, maybe they're saying, look, if you're white in this country and you're poor, well, it's your own, own darn fault. So just get off the dole, forget about it. But we know these folks, and these folks don't want any white people getting off the dole. These folks are the folks that hand out money by the government. They, if, they, they're out of work if, uh, if there aren't people to help out there. This is a purposeful attempt at racism. This is designed to split us apart. And I know very good people who I believe their heart is in the right place, who think this is wonderful and that I just can't see the light. But when you tell a poor white mother with three kids and let's work it out. You know, I think a lot of times there's, there's some intricacies to these stories. Sometimes there are good people who fall on hard times. Oftentimes, people who fall on hard times is because they do really stupid things and sometimes bad things, not just stupid. Uh, but whatever it is, let's make the scenario. It's a, a woman by herself. She's got three kids. I was thinking about four, but I just figure three is enough. And and so she's and she's out of work. She needs no. You're white, and those kids. I'm sorry, those kids have to suffer. I'm sorry, those those kids can't eat, but they're white kids. They're white kids. It's important that they not eat. To 
to equalize, it's almost this, to equalize the suffering. Like maybe, you know, white people should run outside and like hit themselves or something to like, okay, now we've like, in the, in the great suffering, we've equalized things. This is, is insanity. And it's, it's almost like you don't want to talk about it because then you have to realize it really is a serious part of the United States of American, America's governance in 2021. And that this is not just some aberration that we can talk about and talk radio can laugh about and so on. This is our future if we do not stop it. Now, I wonder whether the uh, push to exclude white people from public benefits, and this is a private enterprise that's doing this, so it's... it's and just so we're clear, we mentioned it in the in the uh, uh, script, which is at thisiscommonsense.org, but we haven't here. This is being funded by private donations. However, it's being run as a city program. So there is city workers doing stuff on it. It is officially part of the city. And I just wanted to mention, I saw something on TV, I think, where they were talking about what was happening in Marin County. And it mentioned that the city or the county had put $400,000 in. Now, it's an overall multi-million dollar program. So it's not like that was a huge chunk. That's $400,000 in tax dollars saying, hey, we want this program, but not for white people. No, poor white people, tough. You don't get to be part of it. So my, my question is, is this an attempt by people who have been applying the white privilege argument to find a reason to despise poor white people? Uh, think about it, is that the, the people who like these kind of programs always talk about caring and, you know, sympathizing and pitying the poor and wanting them to have their justice. And they say they've been treated unjustly and that's why they need the special treatments. I mean, that's what this whole thing is about. You know, whether they talk about reparations, which is the classic case, but also just the welfare state in general is, a, is an argument for some sort of social justice or cosmic justice. But many people qu question that because... We look at justice as something that pertains to what people do, not necessarily only on what's happened to them, right? So we expect people to actually work to live and that kind of thing. So if the people of color are getting the benefit because they've been downtrodden and oppressed, white people aren't getting it perhaps because they've been the oppressors. And therefore they deserve to not get it. And therefore we may despise them and if they happen to consistently vote against us, which they often do, white poor people are less inclined to be Democratic voters than other colored poor people, uh, then that seems to be an interesting interesting way of working up hate, if you ask me. I think it's a, it's a, it's a way of working up hate towards white, white poor people, which is an interesting idea. And I wonder if white poor, poor people are getting the clue. Do you argue that that someone who's that this woman with three kids who's on the street or about to be on the street with no job and needs the help is an oppressor. Is she the oppressor? Is she the man? Well, that's always been the problem with white 
privilege. One of the things about white privilege is that you people who privilege you don't have to sympathize with, right? Because they've gotten something extra, more than justice. And so if there's white privilege, that means that these people are truly bad people, these uh, white poor people. Brown poor people aren't bad because they've been oppressed. But white people who have privilege, if they're poor, they've really fucked up. And so the uh, normal conceptions of justice and uh, you know, the deserving poor versus the undeserving poor, it looks like a way of making white poor people the undeserving poor. That's what it looks like. I don't know what's going on in these people's heads exactly because I'm so far from their heads. What's interesting to me is that they have wiped out over the last several decades. I remember back to the 1970s and discussions about welfare, and then we got into the 90s, of course, and there was welfare reform and so on. But there was talk about poor people who didn't deserve the help because they didn't help themselves and because they didn't they didn't act right they didn't live right they were on drugs they did this they didn't, weren't really trying to get a job and there was this from welfare mothers uh you know that that sort of these folks are just taking advantage and i think if you were to have a quiet conversation not on television um with normal people, and in fact, with almost anyone, they would admit that, of course, somewhere, somewhere in America, someone is getting welfare or some other public benefit that really doesn't deserve it in the sense that they've done nothing and they don't plan to do anything and they just want to take, take, take. And they're not a very good person as far as their daily behavior. But that has in recent decades is never discussed. No one ever suggests that because to suggest that is to really stomp on and destroy and vilify and every nasty thing you can think of anyone who has ever accepted any help from the government whatsoever. And that just seems what the, the ground rules are. And so, and it's, it's, those are good ground rules for anyone who wants to expand these programs, because if every single person who's ever received a penny deserved it and more and a lot more, and boy, have they been shortchanged. And if we couldn't do it times 10, you know, AOC this week, uh, the $2 trillion that Biden wants to spend says, it ought to be 10 trillion, you know, it's just like, she's a believer in modern monetary theory. You just print it up and you spend it. And um, anyway, our our whole welfare system, and I'm not just talking about welfare, but all the benefits and all the special, all the things the government's doing for everybody, those are helped by this view that anyone who needs that help, it's totally not their fault. And this interjects into this that maybe it is in some way. Not only in the way you say that somehow they, they shouldn't get it because they're, you know, they're white and they're they don't deserve it, but also by implication in that if there is white privilege, why didn't they somehow make it with all their privileges? And and of course, as as I wrote years ago, uh, two, three, six uh, at at uh, this is common sense dot org. Um, uh, something entitled My Privilege Isn't White. 
the reality is that most of the privileges that count are not based on race. They're based on intelligence, on education, on love, especially love, believe it or not. Who would have thunk it? Uh, if you have like parents who love you, you tend to do better, it seems like. And especially if they like are smart and take care of you and teach you stuff and so on. This is, you know, I don't, I don't, I, it, it really is kind of stuff that people have known all along, you would think, but it's almost like when you say it in today's world, it's like shocking. Um, but it, it matters other things other than race. And, you know, it just, it seems like we, when we get into these subjects, it's, it's the folks on the, on the side of let's institute racism to, to make up for racism it's you just know that everything is race and it will always be that way. And it's like, who, who would want to live in that world? That world can't survive very long. It's like the, the cultural revolution, you know, nobody really saw the cultural revolution and wanted to import it. Maybe we need to like have people on the, on the kind of the, racial what is what is the uh the term they use for it the uh critical race theory you know maybe they need to like show been, be shown films of the cultural revolution in china and and maybe we can talk about let's let's discuss this in a, in a way that's uh more helpful to good decision making by us the people because ultimately we need to weigh in on um one will, you know, somebody's going to take this to court. I, I have some faith uh, in Oakland and in Marin County and anywhere else they do it. Um, but it's the sort of thing that, you know, in, in California. Now, here's, here's something that's important for people to remember because it's so easy for us to just we get hit with so many things on California. California's a blue state. Democrats, they all, you know, they, they all believe this in California. Well, they don't all believe this in California. Last November, that's just, what, four or five months ago? Um, last November, they voted on getting rid of the ban on affirmative action or racial preferences in education. They have been chomping at the bit to get rid of this ban that says you cannot use race in college admissions. You cannot use race in giving different you know benefits and so on and so on and uh and it was on the ballot and if i'm not mistaken uh you can find it at, at this is because we wrote about it um but uh the spending was something like 20 million dollars to 250 000 something like that and uh and yet the people the liberal democratic voting people of california voted to keep the ban on affirmative action on racial preferences in in college admissions and and uh, contracts and that sort of thing so you know this this is not the way the country thinks but this is the way that much of academia thinks this is the way that so much of the apparatus around politicians thinks this is largely the way the media thinks a huge chunk of it, the majority, I think, clearly. And, uh, and so this is, a, this is a big problem. And, um, and look, 
I, you know, and, and we're about the same age. I think I may be a day older <laughs> or, or several, several days, maybe. Anyway, uh, uh, but, you know, going through the 70s in Arkansas, and I remember moving there from uh, New Jersey, where I didn't, wasn't around uh, black folks very often. And uh, in Arkansas, you were more. Uh, white folks were around black folks and vice versa more. Uh, but I remember when they integrated the schools and, you know, tension and the first day and, you know, this and that. And it's, it's you know, it's been a good experience in my life to see racial problems and tensions and violence and intimidation and just disgustingness of treating people vilely. You know, there's been huge improvement on that front, huge improvement. And it's not, and sometimes you have to fight then for more improvement. And so when I get all that, but it's, it's not improvement. We're not going forward. We seem to be going backward. It's almost, and it's, it's uh, and we'll go on a long thing here, uh, but, but it, it's almost that electing a black man president who couldn't be elected without, I don't know if he got a majority of the white vote. Uh, did he get, Tim, he did? I don't, I don't know if he did or not, um, but he, he re it was very, very close. Well, a majority um, of his vote was white. <laughs> well, that's true. No, that's gonna be true. But, uh, but anyway, it was, you know, if, if somehow a huge chunk of white America was anti-black, Barack Obama could not have been elected president. So, you know, because I think the, the white vote was 60 something, maybe 67, even closing in on 70 percent of the vote uh, when he won in 2008. Uh, so, you know, it's just it's it's uh, but, you know, so it was kind of a sign that they're, you know, and I think a lot of, uh, of white folks voted for him thinking this this is time. This is a good sign. This will help, you know, and and it didn't help. I think it, uh, you know, in, in part, I think, you know, there's, there's, well, there's all kinds of things you could go into there, but we better get back to other scripts. I'll just leave it with a few years ago. I, I know in doing term limits back in the nineties, we would often talk about, you know, Congress is a bunch of old white men and so on and uh, nothing against white men, nothing against old white men. Uh, so as I would say it like that, but we ought to have more openings so that if people want to elect women and people of color and whatever, you know, that could be done and that could be opened up. And a few years ago, I just I remember somebody saying something and the way they said it, I just realized I I do not want to put down people because of their race, including white people and including male white people and including old white people. Uh, which I've slowly snuck into that tent. And, and uh, we have to, you know, we have to guard against this. This is, a, this is a serious, serious problem. And in fact, one of the things I liked best uh, that President Trump did in his final year was to get rid of some of this racial sensitivity training BS. And... Um, and and part of it is that he got rid of it, and it's horrible. And I'm glad he he got rid of it. Now, of course, they brought it all back now. But um, the other thing was just to see a president willing to actually do that, because I don't think we've ever had a president 
uh, at least in my lifetime, who would have taken that on. And uh, and I, th I think one of the things that we can learn from Trump, most of us are never going to be as acerbic, as kind of caddish <laughs> as Mr. Trump. So we don't have to worry about that. I mean, we you know, you maybe worry a little, <laughs> but don't, you don't have to worry a whole lot. I don't. But um, but one of the things he showed that we can learn from is that you don't have to be afraid of the media. If you can get your message out and you know that the media is going to slam you, but that there's all kinds of people out there who are going to agree with you, you can succeed by saying what you think and putting it out there and having people you agree, you know, agree with you. And, uh, and to the degree I agree with you, I'll applaud that. And to the degree I don't, I, I'll be really sad that you connected with folks. But, but there is that way to do it. And I think we have to stop being afraid of being called a racist. Years ago, we were discussing a commentary I did about the it was a black guy who, uh, professor and, and a learned man who, uh, a commentator, and was making the point that uh, black community statistics showing, you know, more poverty, more crime, so on and so on, was not the result of fatherlessness. It was the result of structural racism. And which, of course, you know, you could argue that fatherlessness was the cause was caused by structural racism in some way. But I think it's obvious that fatherlessness is a lot bigger deal than than structural racism, frankly. And um, anyway, we were discussing it on Facebook and a woman shot in you know, with a comment that said uh, it was a, a couple of guys and just what we need, white men talking about black men's, you know, black fatherlessness or something as if because we were white. We had no business talking about it. And it really irked me. And it irked me because it is so, it's so normal in the white community to say something like that and to have that attitude. And it serves no one. It is poison. Walking on eggshells and not saying what you believe, you're not helping any black person or white person. Like we said in a script last week about speaking up about China, the life you save may be Asian. This idea that we have to shut up about stuff is not, it's not where America and our civilization got to where we are. It wasn't by shutting our mouths and not saying anything. And when it comes to issues of race, we have to we have to say what we think. And sometimes maybe we're wrong. Maybe we say something, we find, oh, well, I didn't I didn't realize that. Let's have the discussion and let's stop throwing racist, you know, uh, labels at people. But let's also stop being afraid of it. So the, the other interesting thing about that was. The whole point I was making on Facebook, uh, why well, I was wasting my time making a point on Facebook is another question, but but was that 
it's not just about uh, black out of wedlock births is what we were talking about out of wedlock births. Black out of wedlock births since like 1965 have tripled. White out of wedlock births have gone up fivefold. So this is not just a problem. And, and Hispanic and, and Asian have gone up, not nearly, you know, a tiny, tiny bit, but Hispanic and other groups, this is going up for everybody. This is not just a, it, we're not so different. And and it just, anyway, it just go, drives me crazy that in so many walks of life now, I keep hearing, you know, the thing we need to do is shut up and don't say anything. Keep your head down. That's not America. Well, I like uh, talking about causes of obvious social effects. I mean, I, I think that's to me that, you know, where the causation lies in any problem is an interest is, a, is just endlessly fascinating because, of course, it has to be complex. And I'm I'm never or I'm not against talking about structural racism, but there are so many other things that aren't talked about regularly that uh, that I, I, mean, I tend to just dismiss it most of the time because it's all that that's all that gets play on, you know, the media, as it were. Uh, for instance, the Cloward privilege excuse me, the Cloward Piven strategy. Uh, that, was a, that was a strategy of the early uh, adoption of the welfare state, dreamt up by uh, two, two academics, Richard Cloward and uh, Francis Fox Piven. And they basically, their argument was that you really wanted to, uh, uh, really wanted to increase the ranks of the welfare state so that it would overburden the welfare state so that it would be forced to go to socialism. That was their explicit program. Right, their explicit program was to increase the number of people on welfare, so that the government would have to then rethink everything and go the next step. This was back in the early mid '60s, and that was a strategy. And even if it wasn't the active strategy of the welfare state, it describes what happened with the welfare state in society, and people have incentives. And so, giving families with, uh, you know, w without fathers in the home extra benefits encourage people women in this case not to have fathers in the home that's it's it's people aren't right. completely right. irrational and that's one of the things that i think people should just accept is that sometimes the thing that you we do to help people doesn't always help them you know it's a little bit like china's you know at the time People even in the U.S. talked about it as being courageous. That was the head of the National Organization of Women, their one-child policy. Look at the devastation that that caused, not only the cruelty and just brutality and, and uh, the evil of that policy, but the dislocation. Well, you know, our policy of, you know, if they have a father in the home, you don't get any money. Gee, and, and you mean there were less fathers in the home after that? I mean, this is not hard to, it's not hard to, to figure out. And, and even, even helping people with fathers in the home makes the risks of having babies you can't afford less risky. Therefore, it is in some sense an incentive. Uh, and and this, this, goes all, this goes a long way down, and it's just an interesting set of problems, I think. Uh, and uh, in the case of uh, African Americans, you mentioned the the child the China one child policy, which is a is a horrific thing when you think about it. But America has an abortion rate in which African Americans are the chief users of the policy. 
subsidized abortions are in the millions for for African Americans. Well, when you say subsidized abortions, why do you uh, why do you say subsidized abortions? The the money going to Planned Parenthood, things yeah, like things that. Yeah, things like that. And and uh, which, of course, some people would are out there right now saying, no, no, that doesn't that doesn't go to abortions. But of course, it does. like any any operation, if money is coming in this direction that doesn't go to abortion, well, that say frees up the money you have right here to put it toward abortion. Um, so it's it's but subsidized it's or not. It is something that happens. Uh, it is something that happens uh, to African Americans more than others. Others, and that's at, at, a, at an alarming rate. And but no one says that abortion is racist. Do you have a sense of what that rate is? Because I've looked at I, it in the past. Heard... I've looked at it in the past. I forget. I forget what the numbers are. It's just that in New York City, for instance, it's just the, the, the overwhelming number of abortions are are from African Americans. And there's just I don't have the I never remember these kind of things on the top of my head. I just don't remember things right, like that. Right. But it's a, it's an interesting problem because no one ever says you know here that this is a racist program against blacks. I think arguably it is. Well, there are there are some pro life blacks who I've heard say this is a holocaust again. I mean, this is a genocide against our our race. Um, you know that that doesn't they don't usually get rushed down to you know NBC News state, uh, studios, but no, no. Uh, but anyway, well, it should make uh, them, it should make everybody queasy. I mean, it's just it's one of those things, you know, unwanted children are just destroyed. Like they, you know, there are cases of that everywhere in the world. No, that you know, and again, once upon a time, Hillary Clinton saying we want as few abortions as possible. But that doesn't seem to really be the truth uh, of the of kind of the pro-choice side, um, because in that case you would be saying, well, what can we do to reduce the rate? And they're not saying that ever. Um, but you know, it is an issue. It's one of the toughest issues I think uh, to deal with. In that, I happen to have a view that. Life begins when two cells combine into one cell that's then going to multiply. And, and so it's that moment of conception of the two cells coming together. And, and I realize there's sometimes, you know, it, it doesn't happen like and, and send out a little message going, oh, it's happened perfectly now at this point. Uh, but but um, that is tough to police. And I think that... Uh, I, I've always had a problem in that I'm very pro-life. I can't imagine any scenario in which I would think, gee, I, I want to have an abortion of my child. And of course, if I don't want to ever abort my child, I, I'm not ever going to want someone else to abort their child. I, you know, and, and so that's kind of my view. At the same time, I don't want to invest any money in government to really do anything about that. Um, and my main impulse in, in, in terms of government would be, how can I stop them from investing any money whatsoever in facilitating abortion? Um, but anyway, we... I know we're a long ways... Give your two cents, but then we should probably get back to town. Okay, I, I have a whole new theory <laughs> I was going to just develop, but we, we, can, we can go uh, to somewhere else. In fact, your next piece of the week... Uh, you were mentioning how uh, we're skirting on really touchy areas 
and where, where we have divergent ideas from maybe the from the norm. Well, you said that you heard no one mention your view on the filibuster. That you have never heard no one advance your notions of the filibuster. So you probably should explain that. That probably should have been the first thing we talked about. Since it is something unique to you. Well, I I, I do think that just because I I hadn't heard anybody say the the filibuster. I look, it's a it's a sixty percent supermajority. To move legislation in the in in the Senate to get debate stopped so you can vote on it, vote it up or down. If you vote it up, then it passes. And so, you know, especially in a 50-50 Senate, that's 10 Republicans who've got to come on board. Uh, it makes it tough. That rule, I could see people say, gee, I know I, I want it to be 51 votes. I could see people say, no, I want it to be that 60 votes. I think that sounds good. That'll protect the minority and so on. I'm not a fan of supermajorities when it comes to voters. Because I think then you can spend big money and and win when you really lost. Uh, you know, there, there are places like Florida where there's a bill in to we'll get to later. Uh to make a, an initiative have to get 67% of the vote, two thirds to win. And of course with 66.5, you're gonna lose. I mean, that just doesn't make much sense. But but, um, so I, I don't like it with voters, but I think sometimes with legislators, we have more defensive uh, interests in defending against them doing stuff to us. And so, as voters, if we have a good sense of our legislature, you know, if they've never done anything bad, they haven't passed stupid things, well, then we might say, oh, just a simple majority. With the Congress, <laughs> I rest my case. Uh, but but uh, the thing with me is I want the filibuster to be in law or preferably in the Constitution. And here's why. I don't want a party to just decide overnight, we want to push some things through, so we're going to vote to just end the filibuster. And so all these years, all the, the other party, they've all played, it's almost like, you know, it's, I don't know what the, what the name is, there's a scientific kind of tit for tat type thing, but it's like, it's almost like whoever cheats first wins. And look, our political parties, are they're filled with cheaters in Washington. We don't want to incentivize that. And so I want the filibuster to either be ours, the people's, meaning that they can't change it, at least without passing something to change it through both houses. I'm talking about a law, meaning that the House has to agree with it and the president has to sign it or they have to overrule him or even preferable to that, it literally be constitution-based, uh, and that way they can't change it without coming back to we the people and going through both houses and so on. In other words, either commit to the filibuster in some real way to where it's not just can be yanked around by a bare majority, a 50-50 Senate could end the filibuster, yeah, it could. That seems to me to be totally partisan, totally political, and not based on any kind of Republican or Democratic checks and balances. Uh, so I don't think they should change the filibuster until a political party or president or candidates for the Senate, until people run for office and say, I want to change the filibuster, and people vote for them. 
to run for office not having mentioned you might change something as significant as the filibuster by tradition and by rule, I recognize, that's my whole point. That's not right to do it that way. The public has to do it because these are our rules, not theirs. There are rules on them, but they're owned by us or they're not owned by us. And if they're not owned by us, I don't really care about them because they're going to be totally corrupt and partisan and just designed to, you know, screw this person or benefit this person. Either the filibuster becomes a serious filibuster or what's the point? And I haven't heard anybody else say that. And what I find so depressing about that is why not? Why was nobody talking about, hey, we need to put the number of Supreme Court justices in our Constitution? We can't leave that to whatever Congress, the same Senate. Now, I think by debating it some during the campaign, I think it had an impact. And I don't think that they're gung-ho to, to change the number of Supreme Court justices, the Democrats, because they saw there would be big pushback and among the public. But... But, you know, these things should be in the Constitution. Why are they not discussed that way? Because our media people, and this is a hit on them. It's not, I'm not saying they're dishonest or rotten or terrible human beings. They're just not thinking this way. And it is a hit on them because they should be. But they should be thinking about these things from a serve the public attitude from what is the best way, ooh, ooh. I uh, just about had a, I had a little uh, uh, leg cramp. Um, glad I didn't have to scream or anything. <laughs> I had one the other day where I, I did have to scream. Uh, anyway, I, I could lose my train of thought. So where was I, Tim? Well, actually, you made your point. We should probably just remind people should look i at, make it eight or 20 times before i think, I I think you actually just repeated the title because we haven't actually said the title but you've almost said the title our rules or theirs okay and and the, the media should be thinking about it that way and they're not well that's because they're not us they're them they're in the game they're not refereeing it for the public and hoping the and they're not connected to us. They they view us with disdain. I'm I'm just telling people that they view you with disdain, and and not a, not in a mean spirited way. They just think they're smarter, and that maybe we're not up to democracy. And it really democracy should be the little people listening to the smart experts like them. And then voting accordingly. That sounds about right. I, I would say though that that is something about them bad, them being bad. You were you were being nice to them at the beginning. You were you, you, being you, nice you, so that people like you could be even tougher. Yeah, well, I mean, I just think that they're kind of vile. <laughs> I mean, when I if I look at CNN or NBC or most of the people on Fox, even uh, I don't I don't find these people to be good people. I, I mean, I mean, it's it's really no, easy to be I, bad if, if you get some. This is the problem with almost all normative endeavors, all ethics, everything. If you start embracing a bad idea, at some point it corrupts you. I mean, you could be a nice, well-meaning person, but if you if you lurch into communism, it doesn't matter how good intentions you started out with. You become evil. That's right. simply what it is. 
And these people are technocrats. They believe in, the, in a class society and they pretend it's all about equality, but they don't believe any of that. These people, yeah. are, many of these people are uh, either pull down huge salaries or want to and think they can get it by being pundits. Uh, and that's what's that's what it's all about these days. So I don't consider them yeah. good people. I think that I, I think what you just said is accurate, very accurate um, in my observation of of the people I've seen in in Washington. There are also some very nice, wonderful people. Well, you know. Anyway, you know, I, I think that we should make the. I, I want to make the point. Hitler was nice. He treated his dog well, <laughs> dogs well, and loved children. But that didn't make him not evil. <laughs> You know, it, that, that's, no. that's the, <laughs> that's, I'm going to go all the way on that one. I think these people were nicer. They were nicer. Than well, you know, I think it's possible to be less nice than Hitler and to be uh, still better than Hitler. You know, it's possible to be an asshole. Yeah, I know what you're saying. You know, I mean, I know it's possible to be an ass. Niceness, do the right thing. Yeah. You can't, can't be sweet and nice and then, you know... Kill you know, a few million people. At some point, yeah. the balance weighs in a different, in a direct, different direction. Anyway, well, speaking of Hitler and the Nazis, the closest approximation of that same energy is the Chai Nazis. And uh, Wednesday in Lab Rats, uh, which we had a, a comment that those aren't really rats, those are mice in the picture at <laughs> thisiscommonsense.org, to which, which I said, hey, we couldn't get the rats to sign a contract, a waiver, you know, of anything. And so we just went with mice. What can you do? Interestingly enough, uh, we, what was it, last June, I think it was, maybe it was even earlier than that. It's linked in the, in the script, rat, uh, Lab Rats, um, which was Wednesday, March 31st. But we did a piece last year, a commentary about the fact that the United States taxpayer had contributed to gain-of-function research being done in Wuhan. Now, gain-of-function research, and, and Tim knows this a lot better than I do, so he'll correct any stupid thing I say, but gain-of-function research is basically where you're trying to juice up the viruses to mutate stuff and get them to where they're super good so you can figure out how to beat the super good viruses. But see, the super good viruses you're trying to beat for very good reasons could turn out to be super bad viruses if they somehow escaped from the lab and got into a person and then he gave it to a, you know, the, the little virus just soared away from his cough onto somebody else or what. And all of a sudden, you've got a pandemic. And the whole point of this, the people who have talked about this could have come from the Wuhan Institute of Virology or other Wuhan labs, because we point out in this piece that there was another lab in Wuhan that moved on December 2nd. And sometimes moves are messy and things can happen in a move. Who knows what fell out of some truck or anyway, if you've ever moved. Think about that that could be the cause of this pandemic. Um, but there's all kinds of possibilities here. And um, something else we mentioned was that the former CDC director under Trump, uh, who is a doctor and a virologist and has worked in the field for years and years, uh, uh, Redfield, uh, Robert Redfield, came out and said, 
Look, uh, I think that that's the most likely, what is it, etiology? Uh, that's the most likely way that this, this virus got out, was that it got out from the lab. Now, he, he made it clear, I'm not saying anything was intentional. I'm not saying it was man-made, although I think they've poo-pooed the idea that anything could have been man-made much more than it deserves to be poo-pooed. And I just... I just pick up on the poo-pooing that goes on on our on our TV channels and in our newspapers. And when when things that are initially questions are immediately debunked, there's no basis, there's no evidence. Well, that's because someone just mentioned it for the first time. You haven't looked at anything yet. And and look, there's there's not evidence that this came from the lab. There's not evidence that it came from that wet market. In the sense of, oh, here's this, you know, direct thing. We don't know. And when you don't, it's kind of like if you've ever lost anything. If you don't know where it is, it's probably a good idea. And it's actually good to retrace your steps. But, but you know, sometimes when you say, oh, it couldn't be there. Well, then you look for about three hours for your keys and then finally look there. And, of course, yes, yeah, there. Uh, it's It's the same thing here. You can't just, like, say, hey. This, it couldn't be that. Well, that's the way this has been treated all along. It seemed like when it was first discussed last year, no interest in the media, no talk about it. It was talked about as a conspiracy theory. If then we have this trip by people, international scientists coming in, lots of trouble getting people in and getting it set up. They're matched with Chinese, 17 to 17, wouldn't want anybody out on their own. They go to the lab for like two hours to get a talk and told how stringent all the, you know, the protocols are, even though we already know from previous reporting that U.S. officials who visit these labs said, oh, these labs don't, don't strike us as very safe. Um so there's there's all of this. And then um, we get this report. Well, well, first of all, the trip gets there. The big news out of this trip is, oh, extremely unlikely to have come from the lab. Now, no real investigation. They got a little pep talk at the at the at the lab. That's what they got. And that means it's unlikely. That's ridiculous. Then they put out this report. Biden's secretary of state. Uh, Blinken, to his credit, says, you know, apparently the government in Beijing wrote this report. So, I mean, I don't know if we'd be paying any attention to it. And yet our media constantly, as I'm reading, it just seems like you're giving way too much credit uh, to this thing. And, you know, one of the other things that did come out in the report is that uh, in a television interview, one of the members of the team had said that they were told researchers at the lab were sick back in the fall of 2019, which timing-wise is really not a good signal because that's right when it would have been. I mean, it's this is, and, and look, again, we're not saying it must be this, it must be this. And look, an accident could happen somewhere else. Not just China's not the only place that an accident ever happens, and maybe it was an accident. All the cover-up and all of our media 
talking about everything like it's debunked. And let, let me, uh, I, I think I'm going to write something for next week, Tim, because I saw an article today, uh, Josh Rogan, who writes a lot about China and, and issues like that in the Washington Post, had an article talking about what Redfield had said on CNN. And that had links to other articles about people trashing him as if he was trying to get Asian Americans killed, which is a script we did last week, this ridiculous that somehow don't talk about China. We can't say anything bad about China or there'll be violence. When there is this violence, I don't think it's tied to anything anyone's saying on TV news programs about China. Uh, it's it's somewhat ridiculous. And the idea that we're going to stop talking about genocide because, you know, the media is running these stupid stories is ridiculous. Um, but in in doing this, he, you know, he talked about the fact that there is increasing evidence from other sources and more and more people saying you cannot, you know, end the discussion and the investigation into these labs. And in fact, even Tedros, the lab dog of China, you know, supposedly the head of, uh, of who the world health organization came out and said, well, no, 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 we're not stopping looking into that. And that this report didn't get, he not only said that the report didn't get enough information and independent information, he actually said data was withheld from them. So why is any of this important? It, you know, one, it's just important to see what comes out in the end, because it's kind of important. Millions of people have died. Um, but what struck me, it, to me, it's like the mass thing. The, about the third time I read something or saw something, <clears throat> where they wanted to tell me, like, I, if I wore a mask, I was just dead meat. You know, just like wearing a mask was the, this was early on when they were telling us not to wear, you don't need a mask. And then we're, we're actually getting into other scripts as we say this, but, uh, but, and then all of a sudden it was mandatory. But I, I got this inkling that, you know, this, what they're telling us about masks, you know, it couldn't hurt, it seems like. And why are they, why are they doing this? And it's the same about this rush to say, oh, it's not from the lab, before they've looked at it. What does that tell any rational person? It tells any rational person there's something about this lab. And here's what this coming script, I suspect, will have to say. I made it clear that this could be bad for China because... Not only will it be their lab that made this error, but they've covered it up. That's the best case scenario, because the worst case scenario is that it was deliberately leaked. There's, yes. there's no reason to discount that. And we also had a comment this week that basically made fun of the very idea that there was any reason to suspect the Wuhan labs. Uh, it was not my it was not the most prescient comment of the week, in, in my opinion. Uh, and. There are, there are many virologists from the very beginning who said this did not look to them like a natural creation of, uh, you know, evolution. They had reason to believe that it was not. Now, I've heard yes. just the opposite, but 
It's only the opposite that I saw in the media. Yes. I did not see the others. Many other virologists say that. Yes. No, that is true. And it, it is that it, it could be that because they were doing stuff in the lab, they've manipulated the virus and that that's what's being seen. So that it wasn't an intentional leak. It was a leak with something that they had you know, whipped up. Um, but of course, it could also be intentional. And, and we shouldn't rule that out because we shouldn't be ruling anything out until we have more information. But the point I was going to make is in lab rats, I put the, the, made the point that this could place further blame on China, and that's why China's fighting it. But here's the rest of the story. It also implicates the gain-of-function research that's being done not only in China elsewhere, but elsewhere around the world. And the U.S. funds a lot of this research and is very much involved in it. It's a billion, multi-billion dollar uh, worldwide operation. And one of the things that, uh, that Rogan's piece in the Washington Post pointed out, uh, in fact, I've got it here. I think I'll, I'll uh, let me see if I've got it right here. Here's what Rogan says. If Redfield is right, that would mean China bears some accountability for the outbreak, which will greatly complicate already tense relations. If Redfield is right, and that's the point I made this week, if Redfield is right, that would also mean the U.S. government had a big role in supporting the research that resulted in the pandemic outbreak, which is the point we made a year ago, and numerous people picked up on it. There was no lack of interest but our national media, you know, super PAC didn't decide to, to cover it. If Redfield is right, the current response plan, which is to spend 1.2 billion on all this gain of function research around the world, could greatly increase, not reduce the risk of another pandemic. In other words, it may be that the U.S. government in all kinds of different ways and the scientific community, um, and so anybody that the media is going to go to to talk about this, has a very vested interest in it not being a lab leak in Wuhan. And that's people here in the United States. They don't have to have any allegiance to China. They have to have an allegiance to the almighty dollar that's going by certain routes ultimately to their pocket and to the to the medical industry and the kind of the, the government run uh, operations like this. So that's $1.2 billion that could be pushing to have some more pandemics. Now, maybe not. We're not, you know, again, I'm, I'm not an expert. I'm not, I'm not omnipotent. I don't know. I'm not claiming to know. I am claiming that we live in a society where our media operations do not think that is information they want out there. They do not want to help us find the answer to these questions. And that is a horrific problem, a horrific problem. One of the things obviously being denied is that this is a question of an arms race. The reason we're in this sort of situation is that why is the U.S. government involved in ethically dubious and it's it's been repudiated by most medical officials, right? I mean, it's this is this is not 
rocket science. This is pretty obvious that this is a pretty horrific thing to do. I don't know if I don't know where the medical community comes down on it. I mean, I, I certainly understand the thinking behind it. I tend to come down on the other side, and I suspect most people are going to be on the other side, which is the side you're on, which is, what are you doing here? Don't don't screw with mother mother nature. And and the only reason you would what would be the argument against it? The argument would be, hey, there's no way this is ever going to leak. Yeah, well, that's. I mean, come on, is that an argument that anyone at, in a thousand years we won't believe that if someone says that about a lab? Right, and then there's, and it's not as if there haven't been dozens of actually pretty good science fiction thrillers on this very theme. My favorite yes. being Blood Music by Greg Bear, uh, which if you ever want to be cre- <laughs> if you ever want to be creeped out, read Blood Music. Uh, but uh, because the whole world is transformed, it's just not the human race that goes. We all become blobs. Uh, but uh, it's 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 a wonderfully creepy book. But well, there's not enough Steve McQueens to save us all. No, there is not. It's a, they're very different blobs uh, because the blobs, the former biosphere of Earth, then recreate our, our our human beings as gods in their brains. So it's a very interesting, peculiar book. But uh, that's probably not going to happen. That's one of the things about science fiction is it's a lot more interesting. It's soaring. It's soaring up the charts at Amazon right now. <laughs> but but it, it, there's an arms race aspect to this because if we're not involved in bio uh, biological warfare, then they will, and we won't be able to counteract it. So this biological warfare, this is that's what this is, I think, and and. Uh, we mentioned that Fauci is even implicated in the Wuhan business last year. I well, mean, he made the decision to send that money to Wuhan, yeah. as I understand it. But the reason it was sent to Wuhan in the first place is the Barack, Barack Obama administration decided they shouldn't do it in the United States. So this is rather like right. the rendition right. program. which we're, We don't torture right. the United States. We do it in foreign countries. Yes. So this is, this is rendition yes. for viruses. Uh, so I'm not sure that's a good idea. Uh, if we skip over Thursdays, uh, Fridays is also about the virus. That's, uh, but there, the, the title is The Virus is Power. Well, let's do. Let's do that. And and I might come back and pick up just at the very end Thursdays. Yeah, of course. On uh, the virus being power, we, we talk about passports, uh, vaccine, vaccine passports, vaccination passports, um, which all of a sudden uh, we have a link in the piece to what was it a year ago that this this was some conspiracy theory don't believe anyone who tells you there's going to be vaccination passports well, that was a common thing to say on facebook for instance is that yes. I mean, I, my democratic friends said that you know that's just that's just conspiracy talk well it's it's uh you know i think it could certainly uh be coming because there's you know it it almost seems like all of our travel even heretofore is controlled by governments in such a way it's you know i think most people look at our world today and they think we've got more free speech and more news and information and so on than ever before that from a first amendment standpoint you know we're more secure than we've ever been and i think they are 110 percent wrong and that we are so insecure when it comes to the ability to command. We have parts of the world, we're talking about millions and millions of people who they hit a kill switch and, and they have no way to communicate. The same can happen here. And they're not going to hit the kill switch unless they have to. But they've got all kinds of other ways to 
control speech and and to filter things and and it's a it it's it seems to me when it comes to this virus it's also you have to look at it and and I know I'm speaking to the choir because you've pointed this out numerous times what would happen if there was a disease that was really super deadly or more contagious, not super deadly, but had more serious consequences because this disease, this virus is not as deadly as, you know, things could be. And, uh, and that's not to, you know, it's not to not be very sad that, what is it? We were almost at 600,000 now in the U S and there's, you know, what, two, three million uh, around the world, I think that have died. Um, but but we now have a a we're, we're moving so quickly to a world system that controls so many different important aspects of our world, the ability to travel. And and look, I think you could have a totally free system of travel and it might so incentivize having a vaccine for covid-19 that you pretty much say, look, I got to have a vaccine for COVID-19 to travel because otherwise it's going to be too hard to find the companies who will take me without showing my paper. That's to me, that is so different than governments getting together and saying, here's how the system's going to be and mandating that all of us have to have a vaccine. Because the second they can mandate that we have to stick that needle into our arm, then what they put in that needle is really, you know, what do we know about what's in that needle? And what are we going to know the next time? And so it and and look, I'm not I'm not suggesting I suspect I'm going to be vaccinated at some point. I suspect that I'm not in a hurry. I've had COVID and I figure I've got a little bit of immunity. Let other people who don't go go first. But, um, but, you know, I'm not really anti-vaccine in any way. The moment that there is government force mandating people have a medical procedure done, I, I'm out. I'm not, I'm not there. And, and so that's, I think it's a very serious thing. And I think what this also, what we tried to point up is this is about power. This is about people making decisions and having control over lots of other people. And we should always be very concerned about that. And I think one of the uh, parts of this script that I, uh, you know, we were, we were working on the ending, as you'll recall, and <clears throat> had a little trouble with the ending. And then we decided to cut the ending we were working on and just go with what was more appropriate in in a sense, kind of like an exclamation point on it, which was that in talking about a system in which they control, you know, they figure out who's vaccinated and they run a worldwide system of controlling travel, depending on your vaccination passport, China wanted in on the action that had made some proposal that China should run this system. So, uh, you know, if you if you weren't too concerned before, that should that should kind of push you over the edge. Well, uh, your Thursday piece is very different. Uh, it has a great title. 
And it does have a title that brings back to China, but I'm not sure that's exactly what you're trying to say. Uh, Shanghai in Tallahassee. Well, it does bring back China because in Florida, <laughs> China visits Florida. In Florida, they've come, this is the third year in a row, they've come with legislation to just screw up the initiative system, make it more expensive, make it tougher. In, in Florida, you've got to get 900,000 signatures to put something on the ballot. It's not easy. And so they're, they have decided that they're going to outlaw any contributions beyond $3,000 to a petition campaign. Well, if you've got to get 900,000 signatures, you're looking at probably spending, you know, $5 million, something along those lines, to hire people to go out and get the signatures. If you have a lot of volunteers and stuff, it might be $4 million. <laughs> because you're gonna have to hire, you're gonna have to hire people to manage the volunteers. It's a big undertaking, and this is gonna be ruled unconstitutional in court uh, if they do pass it. But it's designed to do one thing: it's designed to use campaign finance reform to protect people from the billionaires. It is designed to silence people. And it's just despicable. They also have another constitutional amendment that in Florida, you have to get 60% of the vote to, to pass a constitutional amendment. 59.9, I think uh, first time medical marijuana was on the ballot there, it got 59.6 or something and failed. Uh, they came back and, and it got over 60. Um, but they now want to change it to 66.7, two thirds to pass a constitutional amendment. I think the voters will defeat it. The voters defeated one on this last November's ballot, uh, Amendment 4, which would have made it to where you had to pass a constitutional, constitutional amendment twice. Like if you passed it in 2020, you'd have to pass it again in 2022. And it makes it much more expensive, much more. It just gives, to me, all these things are designed to do the very thing they're claiming they're fighting. They are designed to make it the province of only wealthy, powerful interests. They want, to, they want to, you know, just magnify the power of money when it comes to these ballot measures. And their whole argument is they're trying to stop rich people from having their say, um, you know, or from, from putting things in our constitution, even though they have to get all these signatures and they have to get all these votes. But the reason the title is Shanghai in Tallahassee is that as I was thinking, how do I write this thing about uh, the crap that's going on in Florida again for the third year in a row? Um, I read an article about the latest in Hong Kong. And most people, you know, that, that look at this issue, some they, they remember, OK, there were all these protests in Hong Kong. <clears throat> and if you don't know much about what's going on, you, what you heard a lot was the controversy because a lot of these protests were violent. Well, they were mainly violent because police were clubbing people in the head. Um, but throughout that, there was always this question about whether the protests have gone too far. And they've, they, you know, Carrie Lam, the head of it, who was appointed, you know, by Beijing, saying, oh, it's hurt business and so on and so on. So in December of 2019, after literally six, eight months 
of constant protest, millions of people coming out. You know, Hong Kong's only like eight, nine million people, I think. Um, and so you had some protests where there were literally close to two million people out. That's like, that's a lot of people. They get to December 2019 and they hold an election for these local offices. It's not the legislative council for the whole city. It's just their local people. And they only get to elect, um, uh, well, well, these are different offices. Um, so they, they have these elections, 87% of the seats are won by pro-democracy candidates. Now, these are not pro-democracy candidates as part of a big party that's been there for years organized. No, these are new people running and connecting and saying, hey, I'm a pro-democracy candidate. These are 25-year-olds going against people who've been in for five and six and eight and 10 terms and wiping them out. So the whole message of whether the people of Hong Kong were with the protesters, the pro-democracy protesters, or with the police and the Beijing puppets running Hong Kong was no longer in question at all. And so immediately... China postponed, not immediately, a few months later, as the, as this was right before COVID hits and the pan pandemic. So what really ended the protest is the pandemic, which means people aren't coming out in huge crowds in millions on the street. And of course, it was immediately illegal to come out onto the street. So if three or four people gathered, they could arrest them just like that. So now they have two new changes um, that they've instituted in Hong Kong. And they just reminded me of the sort of changes they're doing in Florida. I mean, Florida is not quite as aggressive, but, but they're learning. Um, the first is that they've had 35 of the 70 seats. If, if you uh, think about democracy in Hong Kong, it's never been a one man, vote, one vote. They have seats that are like different industry has this seat and so on. It's not a, you know, universal suffrage, one man, one vote type system. It never has been. But they, they, the people do directly elect 35 out of 70 seats. Well, in China, not in Hong Kong, it's not the Hong, the Hong Kong legislature, it's the Chinese legislature, the Communist Party legislature, not elected by the people, that decides we're going to go to 90 seats, not just 70, and we're going to reduce the number that are elected to 20 instead of half. So, you know, it's just, what's the point there? Well, the point is to get away from any sort of democracy. And why? Because they got clobbered, because it is so obvious that literally 90% of the people of Hong Kong want democracy and not the CCP. And um, anyway, at, at the end of the piece, uh, I quoted this woman with the League of Women Voters who said it should not be an impossible process. And that's that's what the politicians are trying to make it. And then ended it by basically saying that uh, she was with the League of Women Voters of Florida, not Hong Kong. But, you know, increasingly it gets hard to, when you want to so undercut any real sense of citizen control of government, you know, the differences become very small. Well, there we are. That was five days of uh, late March and early April 2021. So, that's the end of the podcast. 
You can find Paul five days a week at thisiscommonsense.org, then on the weekends in audio and video form. There's a lot more at the website, so thisiscommonsense.org is the place to be, though you can find the podcast on YouTube, on your favorite podcatchers, or on SoundCloud. Look up Paul Jacob. There we go. That was a week. It's done. It's for the records. This is the record.